You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. After his resurrection, Jesus called his eleven remaining disciples and gave them a mission. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. With this great commission, the disciples became apostles, authorized ambassadors of the risen Lord. Empowered by the Holy Spirit and guided by their Lord's command, they went forth somewhere in the book of Acts. Peter does a lot of things. John somewhat less. James is killed by Herod. But as for the rest, well, it's kind of a biblical mystery. But might there be other evidence somewhere that can shed light on what the scriptural history leaves in shadow? One scholar who's taken up this problem is Brian Shelton, author of Quest for the Historical Apostles. In this book, Shelton leverages biblical matter, the Church Fathers, and other traditional sources to reconstruct the possible journeys and lasting legacies of Jesus' apostles. I'm David Grubbs, and in this episode of Christian Humanist Profiles, I'll be talking with Dr. Brian Shelton, scholar of historical theology and church history, and author of Quest for the Historical Apostles, Tracing Their Lives and Legacies, published by Baker Academic. Welcome to Christian Humanist Profiles, Dr. Shelton. Thank you so much, Dr. Grubbs, and thanks to the Christian Humanist for its podcasts, its typecasts, and the stimulating promotion of humanities from a Christian perspective. Thank you very much. Well, as we get into this book, I always I always like to ask as the first question, why did you undertake this project? Um, I note uh, on your website that you've worked mainly in patristics, but with some interesting ventures into related and not very closely related fields. So, what led you here? As an early church theologian, I had an unsatisfied curiosity about the journeys of the apostles after the New Testament. They had almost no credible treatments in scholarship, and I got tired of Googling how the apostles were martyred, only to find that the (laughs) The charts online have different places and uh, different experiences of martyrdom. And so I, for some time, of course, I've had an interest in early Christianity, but particularly second century Christianity, where some of the sources on the apostles after the New Testament, they begin and they run through the fifth century in what we call apocryphal works, gospels, acts, apocalypses, as well as I knew there were a lot of citations from sermons of significant patristic figures about the apostles and some stories that were beyond the New Testament. So I was, I was curious uh, more than anything else. I gathered and compiled the sources. I filtered them and I reported them to some degree with a range of uh, credible possibility. And it was a, a very rewarding, very challenging, but very rewarding experience. That's excellent. I, I've had a similar experience of not of teaching church history at an in, at an academic level, but at the local church level. And the frustration uh, that I found that you, you find many sources that will say, you know, with, I imagine, a very sober face, and all but one of the apostles dies of martyr's death. Mm-hmm. And then when you start digging and you find out that, oh, this guy was 
flayed, but also beheaded, but maybe crucified. Uh, it it becomes very very frustrating. <laughs> it can be frustrating. You're probably referring to Bartholomew, who may have been flayed, clubbed, or beheaded in Armenia. He may have drowned in Africa or Parthia by the Caspian Sea. He may have been crucified or beheaded in India, <laughs> and it can be it can be. Uh, quite frustrating. And as an early church theologian, right, we're, we're trained in sources. And I just had not seen enough attention to some of the, the early sources. Whether the stories would be true or not would be a different story. Uh, but simply, you know, a, a website with a chart just didn't offer uh, quite the reward, as you've seen. Yeah. You undertake to... Uh two problems right at the outset uh, of your book, uh, the scope and the sources. So in terms of scope, um, it's sort of a definition problem. What is an apostle, and for the sake of your project, who counts? There are various views of the office of apostle and its extent. For this project, I chose really the most common view of what is an apostle, and that is an early disciple of Jesus, as well as some other figures who become significant leaders in the same era. That was my definition of apostle. And I, without adopting the position that the office of apostle has ended, I, I don't adopt that position necessarily, but the attention of the book was on the original apostles. With that definition, I narrowed it because books are also real phenomena and they have page limits and uh, there's strategy and wisdom in how long a book should be. I limited the scope to the original 12 disciples who became apostles. And I subtracted Judas <laughs> and I added Paul and I used Matthias in place of Judas. And as a result, there are 13 apostles, 13 chapters, each one treating each individual figure. Uh, Barnabas was an apostle, and he does not receive attention in the book. And so I really limited it to the original 12 disciples with the addition of Paul and the replacement of Matthias for Judas. Okay. Yeah, it, at first I looked in there and was like, where's the Judas chapter? But then it... And then I slap myself in the forehead because obviously you're not going to be able to trace the journeys of Judas after the Gospels. You say that, David, but fascinatingly, there is a whole Judas Iscariot lore that he did not die by hanging. Oh, that man. In order to honor the scripture, of course, early legends had him hanging himself, the branch breaking him tumbling and hitting his head, thus reconciling two passages, but that he didn't die there, but actually he walked away. Then he continues to lead a life of guilt, uh, maybe repentance, but guilt in which Satan continues to guilt him further because of his betrayal of Jesus. Uh, supposedly, in graphic language, he walks around oversized, and he is physically offensive to the city where he lives. 
uh, pus comes out of his body. It's really quite a gross description. And then eventually he gets hit by a cart. <laughs> but, there, but there's a story. There's a story there that um, that some early church fathers would actually use in sermons, probably to make people empathize deeply with the responsibility, the failed responsibility of Judas Iscariot in their own lives, so that if they find themselves in betrayal or they find themselves guilty, that sin has consequences. And so, on one hand, you could say, you know, the Judas chapter would be pretty simple. But on the other hand, these are some of the legends around the apostles that are available in early church sources that, in this case, we rarely get to see some of them, and they're absolutely fascinating. Maybe maybe that'll be a sequel. (laughs) (laughs) Well... The uh, you, you deal some with the, just the the definition of the apostle of apostles itself, and then you return to that at the end of the book. Um, I don't know if that's necessarily something we want to take on here, uh, but especially historically, apostolic comes to mean something more than just the most basic apostle as commissioned messenger, so that you have uh, things like Irenaeus's. Uh, on the apostolic preaching, or the Apostles' Creed, or the Didache as the teaching of the apostles. Um, what does that word apostolic, or of the apostles, signify in the first centuries of the Church? It signifies a heritage of powerful influence, as well as a tradition, or even a standard for understanding the person of Christ or understanding what they're seeing as Scripture, understanding the God of the Old Testament and his relationship to the New Testament community. The title of the book has a subtitle, Tracing Their Lives and Legacies. And it is the apostolic quality in particular that it's represented by that word legacies. The apostles have a series of teachings, the early church said, based on the teachings of Christ. And those teachings are formative for the Christian life, they're informative for for belief and faith, for the practices of the church. Apostolic comes to mean represented by the apostles, but also passed on as part of their legacy, from the apostle John to Polycarp of Smyrna, from Polycarp to Irenaeus, so that Irenaeus could say that there is this tradition of the teachings of the apostles that churches will hold dear and they'll actually use it to distinguish themselves, almost like boundaries, from other Christian-sounding groups. In particular, the term Gnostic is the term we use to describe an early church movement with a different set of epistemology and a different worldview, and sometimes it seems a very different set of teachings of Jesus, Irenaeus could say they're not apostolic because we have the teachings of the apostles, and I learned from Polycarp, who learned from the apostle John when he was very old. So you're right, apostolic comes to mean the power of tradition, but it is uh, the rule of faith, we sometimes call it. It is a, a standard for life and practice and belief based on the teachings of the apostles and what was recorded and would be called scripture by those same Christians during those eras. 
Excellent. Well, the other problem, and you've already broached this, is the sources that you have to work with. What kind of challenges are you having to strategize, overcome, work around in reconstructing uh, the the mission, the life, the later life, the post-biblical adventures of these characters, some of whom we only know as names in a list? Mm-hmm. That challenge was, of course, the great challenge of research compilation and the writing of the book. And it's that challenge, I think, that explains why you and I might Google an apostle and find four or five different ways that they might have died. It's because the sources are either scant or they're viewed as dubious by early Christian theologians, such as Irenaeus, or by contemporary theologians or, you know, the, the church tradition in which we're raised, in which there is this thing of our Bible we call Scripture, and we read or hear on the History Channel, we watch, that there are lost Gospels of Jesus. I had to work in those sources. I really, from the 2nd through the 5th century in particular, there are apocryphal Gospels, Acts, letters, epistles, and even apocalypses almost like the four genres that we see Hmm. in the New Testament. For research from the book, of course, I use the New Testament, the historical accounts represented there, especially the Gospels and in Acts. And then I also explored the apostles who wrote New Testament books or works attributed to those apostles as part of their legacy. But then I moved out into these other Acts of the Apostles, of which almost every apostle has their own acts. And often these works are as long as the New Testament book of Acts, but they describe their ministry activities by geographical region quite often and has some content of their preaching. It has narratives around their martyrdom. And they also have social blunders that they make, and they have spiritual warfare activities. It's a whole range of experiences. It almost feels a little bit, for your, your uh, humanist listeners, it's like the Odyssey or an ancient hmm. uh, work of journey from antiquity that they are encountering, they are overcoming, in this case, at this point, the name of Jesus. But they've also got some of their own particular philosophical challenges. I suppose the biggest one is that a lot of the teachings of the apostles in these acts are what we call encratic. And this is probably the biggest single problem that I encountered from the sources. Encratic is a term used to describe like an ascetic movement. These apostles would preach the gospel, but then they also tell you what to eat and how to eat it and what to abstain from. And they were converting magistrates' wives but through the preaching of the gospel, but also encouraging those wives to remain celibate in marriage, which, of course, would frustrate the local magistrate, <laughs> and the magistrate, in turn, would arrest the apostle for, for these teachings. Uh, and that, that message is mixed in. It's a holiness message, but it's actually prescribing diet and prescribing lifestyle 
really goes beyond what the spirit of Paul is saying when he says, all things are lawful for me. That is probably the biggest single reason that those works are dismissed and biggest challenge. The second great challenge and the reason that so many dismiss the sources are the supernatural activities. Never have so many people been resurrected or exorcised <laughs> or so many dragons or talking animals uh, come. I mean, this is better than Narnia, these acts of the apostles. So those were the challenges of the sources that I had to discern and sometimes had to turn a blind eye to. Uh, but in particular in methodology, there are place names alongside talking animals. And the place names may be anchors that offer legitimacy to some historicity of the life of the apostle, even if some conjurers didn't turn a dragon on Matthew and Matthew command the dragon and it turn on the magicians and the magicians run away and the dragon chases them, which is an actual episode and a challenge. <laughs> Okay, so so there might still be some uh, plausible association of the particular apostle with the place named, even if you know, even if it was in a Scooby Doo Dragon episode. There has to be the apostles went somewhere, right? And quite often, when religious myth is applied, it's applied in a context that offers legitimacy. Even when Luke wrote the Book of Acts we say, he says, I'm going to provide an account, and he provides a thorough number of details. In fact, the book of Acts is the greatest record of navigation of the Mediterranean Sea from the ancient world because of this figure, Luke, who provides all of these particular details. So it wouldn't be unimaginable for someone who wants to attribute even a false story to an apostle that they would provide a context which offers credibility in order to try to enhance the credibility of the particular story that's being offered. That makes good sense. And again, the apostles had to go somewhere, and they have a command to go to the uttermost parts of the earth. Uh, again, the accounts we have may not be where they went, but it is a starting point for our consideration. Yeah. Well, yeah. One of the things that I was noting uh, as I was you know, kind of reading through the different uh, the different post-biblical, uh, as you call them, apocryphal accounts, is how often they are pushing the boundaries of the geography that the early centuries of Christianity had access to. That they're going to all the places for which um, Christians in that era had names, um, many of which. Uh, like India, they probably didn't have any kind of contemporary communication, but they knew it was there. Um, that 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 I found very uh, very interesting. That their their map still has edges, but the apostles go mm -hmm. to the edges of all of the maps. Mm -hmm. It almost feels like in the case of India that it's everything beyond the Roman Empire. Yeah. So yeah. if there are references to India, you know that they went. Someone has gone far east and has exceeded, as you said, the main lines of communication or the, where the roads might have been built or where the normal shipping could be predictable uh, for communication or for travel. Indeed, uh, that is one of the most interesting things about the, the book. There was only one map 
I think, with one city where I put a question mark. <laughs> and I was really proud of that. And there was only one apostle on one map because I was putting the, the regions they went to and even the cities they went to when I had them. And I would put a, a cross by the location, whether it be region or cities that they died. There was only one, in the case of Thomas, where I had two crosses. Uh, because there were three <laughs> legends in India, I was proud to, to generally go against uh, the Mylapore tradition while still maintaining two other possible death sites of Thomas. Indeed, you're right to recognize that the geography itself uh, is one of the challenges for historicity. Uh, but at the same time, it goes to the spirit of the apostles, that they're going to the uttermost parts of the earth, that they've been radically changed, and they want to take this message of the gospel to new people, new places. And they saw it as part of their vocation, their calling, and part of having been with the resurrected Lord. Yeah. Uh, just breaking it down to cases, uh, you start with Peter, which makes sense. Uh, he's obviously important in the gospels, uh, important in the book of Acts, though he sort of drops off at a particular point. Um, we have two epistles attributed to them, so it, it's natural that we would expect other writers in the early centuries of the church to note his activities, but there's also a really strong motive, therefore, also for the apocryphal guys who are just making stuff up. So as a test case, how are you winnowing the sources to reconstruct Peter, um, given that you've got on one hand, so many historical church fathers who we name who tell us things about Peter's Peter, but we also have things like the Gospel of Peter, where the cross like comes out of the tomb talking and just weird stuff. Winnowing in the book is done to some degree with tension. The degree of winnowing is going to be disappointing <laughs> to some readers. In fact, uh, it's been one year, and the reviews are beginning to come out uh, on the book. And I predicted this was the single greatest one, that the author did not winnow enough. Uh, the sources in themselves are so uncertain. You know, it's one testimony of one apostle in one city. That's not comparatively substantial. So right. generally, the book adopts a tone of possibility. There are some episodes where I disqualify, but not as often, I think, as some readers would like. I think many people will approach the book and say, I can't wait to get the exact life story of Peter. Instead, what they get is they get a summary of all of the life stories of Peter, and then with often a general synopsis, somewhat of a synthesis, but a general summary of what Peter did and where Peter went and what the most major events were. In the case of your test case, Peter, I simply reported the story of how he came to Rome to do battle with Simon Magus, the same Simon that he encounters in the book of Acts, when Simon right. says, I want those gifts, how can I buy them? 
and Peter rebukes him, and it seems that Simon actually becomes a believer in that passage. Well, supposedly Simon continues to be a magician, goes to Rome, and Peter is called by God in the Acts of Peter, and the Acts of Peter and Paul, to go to Rome to battle Simon Magus because he's misleading the church there. And so when I describe how Peter goes to Simon's door, knocks on the door and says, come out for a spiritual battle, essentially, that Simon won't come out. And he gets a dog, Peter calls a dog nearby and gives it the power of speech, and the dog goes in and makes fun of Simon for not coming out and trash talks him to try to get him to come out. That, <laughs> um, I don't say that didn't happen. So I don't really you know. I simply, I, the book purposes to report to the stories, and then in somewhat of generalization, um, to speak about where Peter went in his, his life and his ministry. So I don't believe that story to be true. Make that clear, uh, readers and listeners. Uh, but at the same time, there are other stories that aren't quite so supernaturally crazy. And I didn't want to dismiss them. I felt like almost if there's no book that captures these stories, these episodes and these places, then maybe a starting point would be to report them in the hopes that maybe that would lead others to be able to do research, become more familiar with the sources, and that research lead to a greater sense of definition of what really happened and what really did not happen. Yeah. I appreciate you bringing up Simon uh, Simon uh, Magus, and who who seems like he, he becomes Peter's arch nemesis. Yeah. And uh, I had through some completely other routes had stumbled upon uh, the Clementine homilies, and mm. had had thought of them as very fringy, um, but. If I remember rightly, you point out that uh, I think Eusebius and Jerome also have Peter encountering Simon Magus later. Um, they do, but by mention of name, right? Yes, yes. So, just, so just the idea that there there was this this idea that the conflict uh, the conflict continued. I mean, e- even if even if there's no talking dogs, and even if they aren't having some kind of you know amazing. Hogwarts-style wizard duel in yeah. Rome. Uh, the idea that the Peter, as the uh, sort of belligerent defender of the gospel against spiritual threats, especially those of false teachers, and mm-hmm. uh, I, I love I love the, that portrait of uh, sort of uh, Captain America. <laughs> mm. Peter, <laughs> Captain Ecclesia. Um, you know, taking on the... Captain Ecclesia. Yeah, um, this take... is, uh, th- th- these, <laughs> these are superhero stories, uh, for sure. And in fact, in the case of... Uh, uh, concerning sources, I'm glad you mentioned Eusebius. That's a great situation where Eusebius takes a piece from apocryphal works around Peter and cites it historically. And yet Eusebius names by name one of the works around or attributed to Peter as being false. And so while he condemns the source, he seems to be recognizing that there's a component of historicity mm-hmm. to some of these sources. Hmm. Peter actually challenges... Uh, Simon claims that he will fly before all of Rome. 
Nice. And Peter denies him the ability that he will succeed at it in front of the people. And so Simon supposedly takes off, you know, Captain Anti-Ecclesia, I guess. (laughs) And he is flying through the air, and Peter prays to God, and that's often what happens, right? This isn't their power, this is God's power. Praise to God that Simon will crash and break his leg in three places, because, of course, Uh. three is a significant biblical number. And so Simon is wowing the crowd. You can imagine them clapping. It looks like Simon's (laughs) gospel is going to win the day. And then uh, Simon crashes and breaks his leg in three places, and he crawls off. But these stories also have great theological significance, uh, components of them do. I found perhaps most interesting in Peter's life is that Simon would mock Peter for betraying Jesus. You're preaching a gospel of a resurrected master, but you yourself publicly denied, and everybody knows that you denied him. And so the experiences that they had, even around their own identity, their own failures, in this case, might continue to haunt them in their humanity. And I thought those are the types of things that made the possibility that these stories are true, or to remember that these apostles aren't just superheroes, even if they're not doing uh, Captain Ecclesia type of activities, that they are regular people empowered by God with a message, and not just a generation of, of superheroes who are transcendent and beyond reach of influence and encouragement in our own lives. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. good. Um, James the Greater was interesting to me that j- with his his symbol of uh, the, the scallop shell, and he seemed to be an example of one of the one of the apostles who's pretty prominent in the biblical text, but who's been almost completely overshadowed by the later tr- in in the later traditions by other materials. Uh, in particular, James' connection to Spain. Um, it's you argue that it's tenuous, but it's also so very enormous. It's enormously historically important for his legacy. Can you walk us through walking that tightrope? Sure. James is extremely important to Spain. In fact, except for Thomas in India, you might have no other apostle have such a national affiliation yeah. in terms of the I- identity of the yeah. church in that nation than James the Greater in Spain. Uh, a distant third, by the way, might be the fact that Scotland has St. Andrew's cross, has a cross. And like so many of the apostles' images, their symbols, they're actually all around us, and we almost don't even realize it. In the case of northern Spain, there is this great way of Santiago. It is the great hiking trail that pilgrims would take from the Alps, and thus from France and from Central Europe, and they would travel along this road across the northern part of the country, and it ends at the location of the supposed burial place of James, that his bones at least are there. Along the way, pilgrims would of course, have natural challenges such as water. So the availability of scallop shells on the northern coast 
became symbolic because you could take a scallop shell and you could scoop from a puddle or you could scoop from a bowl and you use it as a, an eating or drinking utensil. And all along the way, when mm-hmm. one walks it, you see these scallop shells as a symbol. It's a symbol of which way to go on the road, but also it is in memory of this legacy of James. With James being beheaded in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 12, yeah. Paul, uh, excuse me, Peter um, has been arrested alongside him. The apostles have hardly emerged from Jerusalem, and when they do, it's just to go to Samaria because the Holy Spirit's there, and they go back, or to go to Cornelius's house and say, you know, we shouldn't be here, and then go back to Jerusalem. One has to have James traveling to Spain before Acts chapter 12, which reduces the possibility. Yeah. And the great reason for the possibility of his bones is actually a tradition that his bones would have been taken there. But still, there, there are some weak traditions that he went, or that particularly visions of Mary to build the church were significant. So somewhere in there, someone at least decided that the bones of James belonged there and that they were the bones of James. And if I'm not mistaken, he is the patron saint of Spain as a result of, of that legacy. So I, that's one of the rare cases where I don't winnow. I'm glad you brought it up. I did. I said that was tenuous. Uh, compared to all the other possibilities, all the other regions, for all the other apostles, that just felt one that would be hard-pressed in a number of years from Pentecost to his beheading. Uh, for someone to travel to Spain. And even if, even if he went to Spain, and even if he started the church in Spain, he still did not die there, according to Acts chapter 12. And so his bones right. could, could go there, independent of whether or not he himself had ministry in Spain. Yeah, I think that's a, an, interesting, an interesting theory that might uh, potentially underlie some of these others uh, as well, as whether... Uh, when we talk about the journey of the apostle, um, might it include something posthumous? Um, mm. You know, uh, the, there are later medieval accounts of the translation of saints' bones, um, and the saints are attributed agency uh, in that in that translation, appearing in visions and working wonders in order to show that it, they approve of that. Um, yes, as a medievalist, you know that any story from the era could just as easily have been invented as have been historical. And that was part of the ethos, was to be able to create tradition around something, whether that tradition could be fully substantiated. You you fill in the gaps, in a sense, because that apostle is significant to your region, or that saint is important to your town. Andrew's bones, in fact, the Andrew chapter I chose to open with the story of the, the translation of his bones from Greece to Scotland, uh, that there was a vision that someone, Regulus, I think, would, was to move this sacred tomb, uh, you know, in Petras, sacred to the Greeks, uh, to, to another place. And, you know, there, of course, there are miracles surrounding it. But as a result, Jan, uh, Andrew becomes the patron saint of Scotland because of, of the presence of relics that were there. 
And then sometimes there are stories that countries give back bones uh, of the apostles uh, to some original locations. But you're right, posthumously, the movement of relics, informal relics, even bones, uh, th that was a part of the ethos of the church and the hopes of the lives of the people who are looking for inspiration for their faith. Yeah. There's, um, there's an old English poem that is translating into, into old English verse uh, some of these sources that, that, uh, that you quote in that chapter about the life of Andrew. Uh, the poem is called Andreas. And it includes the the rescue of Matthew and uh, the the kind of power encounters uh, in the story uh, of Andrew among the uh, the Myrmidons or however it is that one pronounces yeah. that. And I had always wondered why why Andrew why pick that one of the twelve, uh, but there's a very strong influence in the early history of. Uh, old uh, Anglo-Saxon of, of, of English Christianity, of saints, uh, scholars, clergy from Scotland uh, coming down and uh, serving as teachers, serving as as mentors. So I, I wondered whether uh, whether that that Scottish veneration of Andrew is the reason for uh, uh, even within the English Church the those particular stories being passed mm. down in the way that they were. I, mm. I found that uh, that chapter was was really interesting to me because it it, I, it, felt, it filled in a blank in my own uh, in, in in my knowledge of my own field. Well, I'm pleased that there was someone who was reading the book who would be familiar with the literature uh, of of the period. Uh, Andrew is in itself a bit of a test case, the consciousness that is attributed to Andrew and Acts of Andrew and Acts of Andrew and Matthias uh, is perhaps the, the most cognitively profound of any of the literature around the apostles. Hmm. The way in which he has a tension about going to a land that he does not want to go to. Yeah. In particular, supposedly when Matthias was being held by cannibals in Miramdonia that you named, that Andrew is across the continent, and the Lord says, you need to go rescue Andrew. You know, as if the God of miracles who could deliver him across the continent and rescue him from cannibals himself wouldn't just do that for Matthias directly, but he chose to use Andrew and the, Andrew's resistance, almost like Jonah and the whale. And then Andrew's own anxiety, and then Andrew... Um, continuing to move around, even up to martyrdom, and with Andrew you get the, the deepest, uh, most empathetic, most theological speech from the cross. Supposedly the magistrate intentionally did not crucify him with nails, but rather tied him so that he would live longer, so the dogs would come at night and lick his wounds, and that he would suffer longer. But it allows for a very long narrative of him preaching from the cross. Mm -hmm. And that would be a, a, a piece of literature particularly you'd enjoy, that he faces it and he says, Oh, cross, you who, and begins to make attributions to this shameful symbol, the cross. Uh, but at the same time, in the, for Christians, it becomes a, a glorious symbol, particularly. Uh, so for Andrew, just um, to touch on him, 
I thought that the level of erudition that seems to be a part of that disciple uh, transcends even Peter. You know, Peter just decides to send a dog in to provide some debate uh, to a magician. <laughs> but Andrew is reflecting, and he's cognitive, and, uh, and in that sense, I think I enjoy the, the literature around him a little bit more. Excellent. I think we may have time for one more, if you don't mind. Uh, Whichever, whatever you'd like. Sure. I, I'm interested in Bartholomew. Uh, again, for a professional reason, there's another Old English poem about an Anglo-Saxon hermit saint out in a swamp, tormented by devil, tormented by devils, and then a hero from on high comes to rescue him. And that mm. hero is Bartholomew. Mm. And it's never explained why Bartholomew. I mean, did he just happen to be the closest one to the heavenly throne when the call came in, or or what? Um, but he's one of those, for most evangelicals, the way I was raised, Bartholomew was just a name in, in a list. And yet, you leverage both um, biblical uh biblical sources that um, many evangelicals may not have connected with the name Bartholomew, and then also, also extra-biblical sources to reconstruct a surprisingly detailed apostolic career that includes, as you said earlier, um, multiple deaths in multiple places. So let's talk about the pieces of those puzzles, and why did Bartholomew get so interesting? He is the most interesting of the Twelve, in part because there are so many diverse traditions attributed to him. The martyrdoms alone, as you described, suggest that this is a figure that we don't really know much about his journey, but it's almost easy to continue to attribute to him, uh, almost like it's, it's the, the go-to when you need a miracle, because he does so many, and there's so many others that have relied on the image of the figure. Uh, in the case of Bartholomew, you do have certainly top-tier most number of supernatural activities. I, I thought about, in fact, Jude, I called the exorcist, uh, because uh, there's a, a significant event at the end of his life in which there's an exorcism. Uh, but for Bartholomew, I chose the knife, but I could have just as easily called him the exorcist. So, by the way, also uh, Simon the Lesser could have been the exorcist. Yeah. For him, there are so many powerful feats that are done. Uh, I'm reminded of in Armenia, he, Iparthia, his ministry, he spreads out his hands and commands that a demon leave the judge's wife. And it's not just a mere exorcism that is effective, but Michael the archangel descends delivers her and even brings her to the apostles who were on a ship where Jesus is disguised as the captain. So <laughs> it's an exorcism from a distance. The archangel gets involved, and she even gets delivered. And so as you were describing the poem, I was reminded of the delivery of prophets, uh, First and Second Kings, as well as Ezekiel, as well as apocryphal Daniel, with the prophet Habakkuk, where God picks him up by the hair and moves him across mm, uh, yeah. the land, that it wouldn't surprise me that Bartholomew is the one 
who gets conjured or the one who comes in deliverance. He is, again, the top tier, top tier of heroes and supernatural wonder workers, and he seems to be the one that you can throw anything to and it sticks to his legacy. And so maybe all of that diversity makes him an easy go-to, uh, but mm, yeah. at the same time, I think an image is formed there of great wonder worker, great hero, and even great rescuer at times. I'll be curious to hear more about it as you continue to research if something about yeah. Bartholomew's image um, unfolds that he would be adopted um, for that for that group. Yeah, it's it's something that uh, I I've been tantalized by because I you know like so many things you you stumble across things as you're as you're researching somewhere something else and uh, you just have to say that's interesting but it's a question for another day so. One of, one of these days, I'm going to delve back into the old English Guthlock and try to try to see why why Bartholomew. But I, I think you've just uh, you, you've probably put me well on the way towards an answer with just the material that's in this chapter. Uh, he's you know he's like the Ghostbusters. Um, yes. <laughs> uh, it's you know he's who you want to call, frankly. Um, that's right. I would recommend to you. It is in the bibliography of the book. Uh, but one work that surprisingly had a lot of medieval, and not just early medieval, uh, but a lot of the memories about the apostles in poem and liturgical form was L's Rose, E-L-S, Rose, Ritual Memory, the Apocryphal Acts and Liturgical Commentaries in the Early Medieval West, circa 500 to 1251, it's a Brill 2009, but what's contained in that is a great collection of often poetry, and it led me down some to some other sources on the uh, the apostles, uh, particularly Bartholomew in Syria, that there would be poems from the perspective of Satan, frustrated <laughs> with the ministry of the apostle. Oh, and actually, man. it was a bit of a tipping point to have him buried in um, in the West instead of in the East, because there was a tradition that he went to India, because he's going everywhere, yeah. uh, right? India, Scotland. Uh, but I, I landed on uh, his influence in Syria, Armenia, as a likely resting place uh, of his bones. But anyway, Els Rose has an immense number of liturgical roads uh, that's traveled down that were beyond would have been beyond my ability to, to research the apostles in, in the directions that they go into the medieval era. Uh, that one, uh, flipping back to the bibliography, that one actually looks really useful. <laughs> yes. Thank you for that. Yes. But also the connection to Nathaniel, which I had never made, and that's in the biblical text, or at least a... a uh, uh, a a logical inference that seems traditional to make, but which uh, I had not encountered. Hmm. It was another motivator for the book. I think a lot of people hear about how an apostle is related to someone, or why we think Bartholomew is Nathaniel. Yeah. And I was tired of trying to find loose ends and tie them together in my own mind in a way that I wanted to write the book also 
simply to understand the relationship of the biblical characters, even in the biblical-only timeline. I, I swear, I think nine out of the twelve apostles are related to one another somewhere <laughs> in the literature. Um, and then, of course, the figures, even if they're sep- even as separate figures, they get conflated. James the Greater and James the Lesser, and James, the first bishop of Jerusalem, the early church says, probably the half-brother of Jesus and probably the author of the book of James, they're all dying the same death, you feel like, and they're all yep. got the same attributions, and they all are conflated into one person, and sometimes two, and sometimes three, but I adopted in the book three different figures. Uh, but nonetheless, I wanted to sort through some of these particular legends. The, 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 there's an early chapter on methodology where I do layout scope and sources, and for your listeners who will want to read this book um, from listening don't be discouraged and don't be bogged down by the methodology chapter. Jump ahead to some journeys of the apostles. But in the methodology chapter, I do explore the relationship between the apostles, um, particularly around Simon Clopas, that his wife might have been at the cross, that that might be the Simon of the Simon, Simon the Zealot. Mm-hmm. And the, the name Clopas and... Um, uh, Alpheus as being similar in root so that actually even uh, Matthew is brother to James, son of Alpheus. Uh, Matthew's son of Alpheus, I think Mark's Gospel says. It was a web, David. It was a nasty web that has been woven about all of these figures being all related to one another. I mean, it was like a family reunion at times. Uh, to imagine the, the apostles gathered around a campfire listening to the words of the Master. But I wanted to offer some clarity on that. There have been a couple reviewers uh, online that have offered criticism uh, to that section of the book because I don't adopt some traditionally Catholic, I don't adopt heavily some traditionally Catholic views about James, about Simon, and about Mary and particularly their relation, relationship as stepmother. Mm-hmm. And so uh, that is an important component. Uh, it is an interesting component also, but I'm glad you brought it up because that was another motivator. I think uh, a lot of Christians want to know uh, who, who are these disciples even before they go on these journeys that the book tries to discern. Right. It makes a, it makes a lot of just on-the-first-look sense that a lot of these uh, a lot of these folks would be connected to one another. I mean, the top four mm-hmm. are brothers, explicitly mm-hmm. named as such. Uh, it and uh, we have uh, gospels like John, in which you see brothers sort of working the brother network. Um, yes. And uh, so, so it's 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 unsurprising that. Uh, later readers would look for those kinds of patterns that were already established to be there but but i mean they you know they then are are just as dissatisfied as we are now by the loose ends that the canonical yeah. accounts leave and uh, the temptation to tie them up too neatly i guess is uh, a, a hard one to fight <laughs> And as a researcher and as a scholar, I, I didn't want to make conclusions that were not sound. Right. And as a result, there's a lot of loose connections and possible 
journey itineraries and even events that uh, I did not dismiss part and parcel just because, you know, maybe some of these events and maybe even supernatural or what they viewed as supernatural, uh, that these things uh, could have taken place. Right. Well, dear listeners, I'm afraid this is all the time that we have, um, except, no, wait, 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 I started ending too soon. I forgot the last. <laughs> okay. I'm going to address our editor. Hey, Britt. Um, so this bit, uh, chop chop that last opening segue, uh, because I need to make our customary move. Whew. Starting again. Well, I think that's all the conversation. Blah. All right, starting again. I've lost my cool. <laughs> Well, I've worked through all of my questions uh, for this conversation. So on Christian Humanist Profiles, we like to show hospitality, though, by giving our guests the last word. So is there any point that we've already emphasized or another from the book? Something, uh, what would you like our listeners to be thinking about as we round out this conversation uh, about the apostles, about their legacy, and about us uh, hopefully wanting to walk in their footsteps. The apostles are believing deeply in something. Something has happened to them that was transformative, that would make them go to these regions where they were unfamiliar and encounter what they encountered, including rejection, conflict, and even death. What their lives stood for and what their legacy is for us is that great encounter that they had with Jesus and that a resurrected Lord had changed them. I hope that readers would be able to see that this work that reaches into the past also connects the present to that past and might even be part of the hope for the future that we all have. Excellent. Well, dear listeners, that's all the time for conversation we have today. Uh, I've certainly enjoyed it, and I hope that you have too. And thank you for coming on Christian Humanist Profile, sir. I've, I've really enjoyed our time. Well, thanks so much to the Christian Humanist scholars. Keep up the good work. Will do. Christian Humanist Profiles is a show on the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic, and our editor is Britt Stack. So I'm David Grubbs, the host of this episode, telling you, be listening for the next Christian Humanist Profiles.